So we're continuing the seventh letter and we're really up to the footnote number two. But just before we get up to footnote number two, I just wanna go back to the main letter. So we read it for a moment so we can understand what we're addressing. So what he was describing at the end of the first paragraph on page 105, that there would be introduced into the ranks of the nations, one people which would demonstrate by its history and way of life that the sole foundation of life is God alone that life's only purpose is the fulfillment of his will, and that the formal expression of this will, specifically addressed to this people, serves as the exclusive bond of its unity, okay? So now in footnote number two on page 109, we're going to discuss in greater detail the idea of how the nature of our existence is actually the source of our unity. Three points are stressed here, on which Rabbi Shabshanafal Hirsch elaborates in this and later letters, as well as in other writings. First, God is the sole source of life of the Jewish people. This is demonstrated at the very beginning when truly miraculously, Abraham has a child at the age of 100. And in truth, it's not just Abraham. We find that all of the Imahos, all of our maternal ancestors, right? Sarah was barren, Rivka was barren, Rachel was barren, right? This was something that was inherent to all of them. Yaakov, not Yaakov, but, um, but Yitzchak could not have a child with Rivka for a while, for 20 years. Avram did not have a child until he was 100 years old. And Rav Hirsch explains the why does it have to be like that? Why did it have to come about in such a way? And the reason is because to teach us this very lesson that the entire existence of the Jewish people is a miraculous existence. Indeed, our sages point out that the phrase, I will make you into a great nation, teaches us that a special act of God was needed to create a Jewish nation in the face of external natural conditions that would not have allowed such a development, whereas other people grow naturally into nationhood. What's he referring to? <laughs> Typically, the way of the world is that you have a group of people, somebody's a, a strong personality, he becomes the patriarch of a family, his children are strong personalities, and they start exerting some sort of dominion over the people in the area, and they develop a strong tribe. And then perhaps they vie for supremacy with other tribes in the area until by force, by might, whatever, however they get to that point, they end up developing the strength to have some sort of level of, um, of subordinating a bunch of people to their will. However, the Jews were not able to arise from natural conditions, right? We think of where we come from. We come as 70 people going down to Egypt to be enslaved. What should have the results have been in the natural scheme of things? We should have disappeared. We should not be existing anymore. But what ends up happening, we know the story. The emergence of a people out of Egyptian slavery in defiance of its taskmasters was an unparalleled miraculous event. Rabbi Shabshin Rafael Hirsch points to the Jews' initial refusal to heed the call of Moshe and Aaron, as mentioned in the Torah, as a sign that the liberation from Egypt was not the result of a popular uprising. So he says something more. He says, to be clear, <laughs> the Jewish people did not want to go along with this mission. They did not want to rebel against power. They thought it was doomed to failure. And we find not only did they not want to listen the first time, but then they come back and complain when life gets worse for them. What did you do this to us for, right? This is not a national popular uprising that ended up being successful. Okay, against odds, a popular uprising was successful. That's not what happened. Hashem had to take us out of this situation. You know, he's not quoting Rav Hirsch on the Brisbane Abbasarim, on the covenant between the parts. I actually thought he would. Rav Hirsch explains 
that when Abraham is on his way out of um, out of um, Haran and going to to uh, you know at that point Eretz Canaan, right, the land of Canaan. So Hashem has this uh, sort of very powerful vision that He gives Abraham when He separates the animals and He brings these offerings. And in this very powerful vision, Hashem tells him, "You will have children." But you should know that your children will be going down to a land and will be enslaved in the land of Egypt. And there's a question that everyone deals with. And the question is, typically in the Torah, we are told there's a level of free will. And typically the end is not revealed before the choice, what they want to do, has been acted upon. So it seems a little strange that God is kind of saying, hey, listen, this is the way it's going to be. Your descendants are going to be going down to Egypt. If this was as a punishment, then we should have the ability to choose to engage in behavior for which we would be worthy of going down to Egypt, or perhaps not to engage in that behavior. But instead, we don't have that option. Hashem says, your descendants will be going down to Egypt. It is what it is. Nothing to talk about. What's going on with that? Right? That, that's very atypical. Typically, what happens is you read in the Dvarim, in the curses in, in Deuteronomy, you read in the, the rebukes in Vayikra and Leviticus, and again and again and again, what you read is, if your descendants choose to do what is wrong, then you will get punished. Over here, this has to happen. So Rev Hirsch explains, and this is really based on er earlier Rishonim, they explain that the fact that we had to go down to Egypt was part of God's plan. The very fact that we went down to Egypt in the first place is all part of this plan that it should be clear to all that the existence of the Jewish people is due to miraculous intervention. It is not a natural existence. The fact that we could be slaves to the most powerful nation at that time on the face of the earth, where no slaves ever escaped, and that our entire nation should escape, and that we should have these miraculous makot, the plagues, to ensure that everyone recognizes that God runs the world. This was all part of the plan. Even the very, the very, uh, the punishments and the persecutions that happened in Egypt was all part of the plan so that God would teach us and the world that he runs the world. The prohibition of leaving one's house on the night of Pesach further underlined the fact that the Jews did not have a hand in the events of that night. The redemption from Egypt was a divine miracle in which no human being could claim any share. Moshe was indeed used by God as his messenger, but the Torah stresses his sense of unworthiness and his physical handicap, as if to make it clear that it was not his spellbinding leadership that freed the Jews. No one should make any mistakes. This is not due to his tremendous charisma. He's someone who has difficulty speaking. He's not an orator. The reason why the Jews were freed, no one would ever make the mistake of thinking that it was Moshe, overwhelming personality. No, that's not what it was. It was Hashem. Indeed, the failure of his first mission to Paro was meant to bring this lesson home to the Jews. Through the millennia that followed during the later history of the Jewish people, its miraculous survival as a sheep among 70 wolves constantly demonstrated that its life totally depends on God. The second point made here by Rabbi Shamshin of Al-Harsh is that the entire purpose of the life of the Jewish people is the fulfillment of God's will, as demonstrated by the distinctive way of life given to it and accepted by it. Right? So to, to address what we were talking about yesterday, like how do you know someone is a Jew? Well, ideally, we know someone's a Jew because they live a different life and they have a different lifestyle. And it's clear they're doing things differently, right? And the reason why they're doing things differently is because they believe they have a mandate to act differently. Finally, the expression of God's will, the Torah, is the exclusive bond of the Jewish people. This is a very famous line that Rabbi Sadia Gon said. Rabbi Sadia Gon, who was one, 
one of the final Geonim, where the Geonim were the leaders of the Jewish people in Babel, in Babylonia, towards the end of that, of when we were leaving the, the heights of the, uh, the exile in Babylonia before we ended up making our way to Spain, to Germany and to France, so in about uh, 900 or so, Rabbi Sadi Goen's famous dictum, our nation is a nation only through its Torah. That is what makes us a nation. In answer to all the questions, we know when, you, when you're answering a census question, what's your ethnicity? Is it other? Is it this? Is that? The answer really is, if you give me a place to write in, the answer to my ethnicity is Torah, then I'll write that in. But other than that, I don't really have anything to tell you. Indeed, no other factor, whether race, history, language, self-identification, or beliefs, has ever been able to account for the national cohesion of our people or to serve as a truly unifying force for it. It is only the unification power, the unifying power of the Torah that truly unifies. When you look at all other factors, you look at them, um, you know, throughout our history, whatever the factors might have been, there's always there's always fights and ends up being complete divisions and people are, are separated completely. Rabbi Shamshan Rafael Hirsch thus spoke of a people, a whole people, which is to have no other basis for its existence, for its whole life activity and significance than this Torah. And this is a, an incredibly critical point. Last week, I read an article in Jerusalem Post by a professor of, uh, at um, the UCSF, maybe, at, maybe San Francisco State University. Um, she's in her 30s, and she basically wrote a book, which is, I imagine, her PhD. And what the book describes is that, you know, there's this emphasis on trying to figure out the Jewish diaspora in terms of how the younger generations are losing connections to religious experiences. And they're no longer connecting to the Torah. They're no longer connecting to the synagogue. But what she wants to point out is that we have to redefine religion as also cultural events and also the fact that they enjoy Jewish cooking and they have to go to Jewish museums, right? And I see Jonathan shaking his head. And, and, and of course, it's, it's, it's a little bit silly. You know, I, I'm not saying her name because I don't, I think it probably is Lushen Hara to say something that silly. Um, but the idea that that's going to retain any sense of identity past a generation, perhaps, maybe one more generation, and then it's just all gone and dissipated completely. The, the only way that we remain connected is truly with the connection that binds us all, which is the connection to the Torah. Any other connection is just, it, it ends up dissipating a generation, perhaps two generations. Okay, take care, everyone. Be well. Good night.